Well, as we uh, gather here today, we are in Numbers chapter 16, continuing in our series in the wilderness. And uh, as we see this story, it's not, it's not a real uplifting story, but it is truth that God wants to make sure that we understand. So as we walk through this today, we'll take a look at the pride and presumption that is present in the rebellion of Korah and his followers and consider how that applies to us. Last week when we were in chapter 15, uh, we saw the Lord once again establishing that those who belong to the Lord must live set apart to the Lord. That's a theme throughout scripture. It's not like it just shows up here or there. It's a New Testament thing or an Old Testament thing throughout the entire Bible. And logic really dictates this. If we belong to God, then we live for God. Pretty simple. If we don't live for God, it doesn't, it doesn't earn us or unearn our favor with God. But if we don't live for God, if we live for ourselves, that's a reflection of who we really are and where our hearts are. The lives we live reflect the reality of our relationship with the Lord. So if we belong to God by faith, we live for him and not for ourselves. This was and is the pattern of Jesus, who, uh, as we see in, in the latter part of John chapter 4, was more interested in doing the Father's will, more excited about that than food. That, that was his nourishment. What was more important to him, more satisfying to him than eating was to do the Father's will. Our core reality for today is really simple. It's really short. You have it in your programs and on the screen. Sinful hearts resent God's sovereignty. Sinful hearts resent God's sovereignty. We see in this text that our response to authority reveals our attitude toward God. Let's, uh, let's read the text so if you have not already, hopefully you've had enough time to do that, turn to Numbers chapter 16. We'll read the whole chapter together. Here's how it's recorded for us, starting with verse 1. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Koath, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, You've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, In the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy. And he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses will cause the man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put fire and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. 
Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle and to stand before the community and minister to them? He has brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself, but now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, <clears throat> but they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you have brought us up out of, <clears throat> out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards? Will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, Do not accept their offering. I have not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, You and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron. Each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each man took his censer, put fire and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the... <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, Oh God, God of the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, Move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to the tents. Then Moses said, This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But... If the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households and all Korah's men and all their possessions. They went down alive into the grave with, with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled, shouting, The earth is going to swallow us too. 
And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Eliezer, son of Aaron, the priest, to take the censers out of the smoldering remains and scatter the coals some distance away, for the censers are holy. The censers of the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be a sign to the Israelites. So Eliezer the priest collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned up, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites so that no one except, <clears throat> excuse me, to remind the Israelites that no one except a descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned toward the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. And Moses said to Aaron, Take your censer and put incense in it along with fire from the altar and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has already started. So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we recognize that you are an awesome God. You are a God to be revered, a fearful, frightsome God. You are holy. Lord, as we encounter your word today, teach us what that means. Teach us not to take your holiness lightly, nor to think that we have some right on our own to come before you on our terms, but humble us, Lord. Crush us if necessary, that in our brokenness we might not be destroyed with those who show contempt to you. Father, we, we do invite you, as we sang earlier, to come into the room and do what only you can do. It's your spirit that we long for, Lord, your presence among us. It's not really about what we want. Everything else can wait. We want you to be you. Teach us, Lord not to try to usurp the authority that you have placed over us, not to 
not to desire the things that you have given to others, not to exalt ourselves, but to exalt you alone. Create a clean heart in us, Lord. Change us. Purify us from all of the flesh, all of the, the sinful nature and the wickedness that is so natural to us. Restore to us the joy of knowing your salvation. Renew a right spirit within us. Father, we ask now that you would protect our minds and our hearts from uh, the attacks of the evil one, from the error of human foolishness. Lord, protect anyone who hears this from my opinion or any human thought. But reveal to us by your spirit what your word has for us. Speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue, Lord that you alone might receive glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Sinful hearts resent God's sovereignty. This is the struggle that we see in this chapter. It's the struggle that we face in our own lives. When we are governed by our flesh, when we are thinking according to our own wisdom, our own understanding, it is natural and inevitable that we will reject or resent what God has determined to be our lot, particularly when we compare it with the lot of others. We see what someone else has and think, well, they don't deserve that. We see what we have and think, well, surely I deserve better than this. We may not use those words, but the state of the heart is the same. The mind that is governed by the flesh, by the sinful nature, does not submit to God, nor can it. That's the nature of sin within us. It hardens us and it blinds us. It is clear throughout the entire narrative of Scripture and, and, and made explicit in various passages. We see it in Paul's writings in particular in Romans 13 and, and Ephesians 5. And we see it in, in the letter to the Colossians and Peter's letters that we must submit to authority as those who belong to God. Now that's not always easy, particularly for us as Americans. We have a revolutionary spirit in us. We have an independent spirit in us. I think that's a pretty good reflection of the nature of a human spirit, but it is perhaps magnified for those of us who belong to this nation that began under a revolution. Now, without getting into a, a lot, even though you know I want to, without getting into a lot about the American Revolution itself, there's a difference between an ordered and explained overthrow of an illegitimate authority and submitting to the authorities that God has established. That's going sideways and too much for us to develop in the context of this lesson. But understand there's a difference between a rebellious heart and recognizing 
that a particular claimed authority is not a valid and legitimate authority. There is a difference in the spirit, you can study this for yourselves, you're sensible people, in the American Revolution, as we call it, and the French Revolution, or the many French revolutions, but the French Revolution in the early 1800s. There is a difference in heart, in attitude. It's not merely a matter of throwing off authority. It's a matter of trying to establish a rightful authority. When we as Christ followers encounter bad authority figures over us, the words of Jesus and the words of Paul very clearly and very repeatedly instruct us to essentially bite the bullet, to submit as if we are submitting to Christ. At the same time, we see by their words and their example that we are called to change what we can. Paul even says to a slave, if you can gain your freedom, do it. If not, you submit to the unjust authority over you because this is where God has placed you. These are words we don't like to hear, particularly in an egalitarian society that thinks we're all equal, we're all the same, we should all have the same access, we should all have the same rights. If there's anybody in here who does not believe that at your heart, I'm not sure that you were raised in the same society I was because there's no part of me that willingly and comfortably acknowledges that anybody else is better. You don't have some better inherent worth or dignity. You weren't born to be king. Other societies have believed such things. Americans don't. But Christ followers recognize that God is our king. And he is sovereign over all things. Now, as we look at this particular story, um, there, is a, uh, there is a way to read it wrongly. And if we come into the text from a framework that says we need to, we need to see this through the plight of uh, social justice and, and social upheaval, uh, have the, the, the kind of the critical theory mood that see, sees certain people as oppressed and certain as oppressors, and this whole idea that there are the haves and the have-nots, and that's the, the fundamental crisis of society, then we have utterly missed the point of this text and the overall message of Scripture. That does not mean we should not fight for justice. That is a very clear message throughout God's word. He is a God of justice. He causes people to be people of justice. We should love justice, walk justly, love mercy. All of these things go together. But we must not come to the text with our civic pride or our political leanings or our economic understandings, or our beliefs about basic human rights as a framework dictating what we see in the text. Rather, we must look at the text and let the Word of God determine what our framework will be that guides our understanding of everything else. Make sense? We all together? Okay, so with that in mind, 
let's take a look at what we're talking about here. We're going to look at this chapter in seven categories today. There are seven categories we're going to consider. Uh, we'll look at the context of, of the problem. We'll look at the character of the problem. We'll look at the crisis, the problem itself, the contagion of the attitude, a contrast between the attitudes of the rebels and the attitudes of God's servants. We'll look at the confrontation between those who stand for God and those who stand against him. And finally, we'll look at the conciliation that takes place. So as we do this, we want to be looking at this chapter, the same as everything else, through the lens of, of the core reality for the book of Numbers. If you have been working uh, through the dig and discover principles with us on Wednesday evenings or Friday mornings, then you've learned to see this as the melodic line. Just as when we were singing songs up here today, you'd hear uh, Shelley singing a particular uh, melody that carries the song along. That's that tune that stays in your head. But it's supported by these harmonies that are being sung by the different vocalists, these different notes being played on different instruments at different times and in different ways, but all of it serving the purpose of carrying along that melody, that melodic line. They are supporting they derive from it, they contribute to it, but the melody carries it along. In the same way, the melody of the book of Numbers helps us to understand everything else within the book of Numbers. That core reality is this. Our, faith, our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. Our unfaithful choices have consequences, but the Lord remains faithful to his promises. That's the message of the whole book of Numbers, looking at it in a, in a snapshot. God sets them up for success. He's got them to the, to the very brink of the promised land. He's about to bring them in, uh, but they decide to do things their way. They don't like what's going on. They grumble against God. They reject, if, ultimately, they reject the promise that he's given to them of this inheritance. We see echoes of that even in today's uh, passage. And so because of that, this generation is doomed to die in the wilderness. God sends them back just where they came from, essentially, as they wanted to do. He said, okay, you want to go back? Great, you go back. But you're going to wander around the desert for 40 years. And then I'm going to keep the promises that I made to bring my people into the land. But you're not going to see it. Your children will. You know, the children that you were so afraid we're going to be turned in to pray, they're the only ones who won't. So here, having already experienced that, they've already rebelled against God, they're about to, depending on where the story takes place, it's kind of hard to place it uh, chronologically as far as when and where, but somewhere in this wilderness experience, we see Korah, and a group of people that follow him decide to rise up and say, wait, just one doggone minute, Moses. Who do you think you are? Aren't we all God's people? Aren't all God's people holy? So why do you get to call the shots? Why does Aaron get to go into the holiest of holies and the rest of us don't? I'm a Levite. I, I, I have rights, don't I? Aren't we all 
equal in God's eyes as his people. Therefore, we're going to do our thing. We don't really accept your authority anymore. So Moses is upset, but he's not primarily upset because of the fact that he's being called out. I think he's kind of getting used to that at this point. But he is so overwhelmed as he has been at each turn when God's people turn against God. And he gets frustrated with them and he gets angry with them, but he continually intercedes for them before God. When God is ready to destroy them all, and we saw this previously when he said, I'm going to wipe out these people. I'm going to start over with you, Moses. So I'll still be keeping my promises, but all these folks, they've already rejected me. I'm going to wipe them out, and we'll start over. You will be the continuation of Abraham's line. And Moses, rather than saying, hey, that sounds pretty good, he steps in and he intercedes for them to bring God's mercy. Now here, as we're in this story, we see this resentment. Even though Moses has interceded for the people over and over again, even though, as he points out to Korah, who is a Kohathite, a son of Koath, that God has given you a special status. He's given you a unique place to handle the things of the tabernacle that the rest of the Israelites don't get to do. Only the Levites do that. And within the Levites, only the, the, the descendants of Aaron have the priesthood. So you all do all the holy things that nobody else gets to do. You get to draw near to God, but only the descendants of Aaron get to burn the incense, get to uh, do the actual um, sacrifices. Only the high priest, only Aaron in this case, gets to enter the holy place, the most holy place where the tent of meeting is, where God meets and manifests himself. But that's not good enough for them. They don't like that. Essentially, what they're saying is what God has said, what God has determined to be that person's role or our role, that's just not good enough. I want something different. And isn't that what so many of us want, so many of us crave? As we, um, as we consider this, let's take a look first at the context. The context of the problem is this. And I think this is a significant thing for us to be able to pray about. Those who lead God's people face constant spiritual attack. Those who lead God's people face constant spiritual attack. This observation comes from the first three verses. You can see what takes place. Korah, son of Izar, the son of Koath, so he's among this special line of Levites. <clears throat> and certain Reubenites, including, as he mentions here, Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Palath. It's funny, he doesn't get mentioned throughout this, but he's mentioned here. Well, they become insolent. Now, just when you start with a sentence like that, when you start with these people from these families, these positions, these are special groups, they become insolent. It's not like they were left out of the promises. 
not only were they not left out of the promises, they had special promises, special roles that God had given to them. But it's not enough for them. They become insolent. Verse 2, and they rise up. So they become insolent, they became insolent and rose up against Moses. Moses is the leader who represents God before the people. With them were 250 Israelite men. Now notice what it says about these men. They were well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. So these people represent the rest of the people. There's a headship here. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. What does that mean? Well, as we observe it, we can see that what they're talking about is the idea that, that they are doing what God said. And Korah and those who follow him think that's too far. You've set yourself above us. You think you're better than we are. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you've gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them. And the Lord is with them. You're not better than the people. All the people are holy. We are God's people together. There's an egalitarian tone here. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? This picture that we have um, reminds us that Moses and Aaron here are God's representatives. And they were called by God to lead his people into his purpose. Right? So they're, they're God's representatives called by God to lead his people into his purpose according to his word and for his glory. God chose them. They didn't seek it out. They didn't choose this role. In fact, if you'll recall back in Exodus, Moses actively resisted it. Lord, not me. Anybody else. I, I, I'm, I don't talk good, Lord. Not me. And so the Lord gives them Aaron and they go forward. But God chooses them. They didn't choose him, nor did they seek out the role that, that he gave them. Notice this. Humility submits to authority while pride presumes its own authority. Now, this is at least the third coup attempt that's recorded for us since chapter 12. I mean, since chapter 12. You, you've got four chapters, you've got three coup attempts right here that have taken place. One of them was actually by Aaron, and Miriam, Moses' own sister and brother. Satan works hard to shipwreck those in positions of spiritual leadership. And as he does this, those who are in, in spiritual leadership and influence have, um, they have a target on their backs. And he does this in a variety of ways. Sometimes it's a coup like this. Sometimes it's a particular temptation to drag them down. But understand that those who lead God's people face constant spiritual attack. Therefore, I implore you, even as the Apostle Paul did, to be in constant prayer for me. Man, I need it. To be in prayer for our overseers. To be in prayer for all those whom God has placed in varying levels of authority. And pray that we might resist the devil that we might rightly handle God's word, that we might serve for God's glory 
and for your good. Those who lead God's people face constant spiritual attack as we see here with Moses and Aaron. Next, notice the character of the problem. Sinful rebellion often dresses in human wisdom. Sinful rebellion often dresses in human wisdom. So if you can imagine uh, Halloween or uh, Mardi Gras, people wearing masks and, and all of the things that go on there, behind these masks is someone very different than the way they might look on the outside. In the same way, very often what seems to present itself as good, noble, but human wisdom, humanism, seeking the, the human rights because humans are the pinnacle of all things, this attitude that seems so noble is often a disguise. Trying to serve God according to our own desires, on our own terms, is sinful rebellion. In fact, uh, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us that very thing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And don't lean on your own understanding. Right? So trusting in the Lord with all my heart is different than leaning on my own understanding. My understanding, my wisdom, what seems right to me can be very, very misleading. In fact, that is the exact phrase, the, the damning phrase that governs the book of Judges. Each man did what was right in his own eyes. I grew up spending my whole life thinking, what's wrong with that? Isn't that what we're supposed to do, right? Didn't, didn't the great theologian John, John Wayne say, a man's got to do what he thinks is best, right? If you didn't watch Hondo, go see it. It'll make you a better person. So uh, that, that was, it made all the sense in the world, right? I should do what seems best to me. I should do what seems right according to my own wisdom and understanding. Not so fast. The heart is deceitful. It's sick and desperately wicked. Who can know the heart? Who can trust it? At the end of Psalm 19, which was on my mind this morning as I saw that beautiful sunrise and thought of the, the skies, the heavens, declaring the glory of God. And in the latter part of that, that psalm, the psalmist transitions because the glory of God in creation is one thing, but it's insufficient apart from the perfect law of God on which we meditate. But he wraps up that psalm by saying, who can discern his hidden faults? Who can know the sins that are inside our hearts? We sin without even thinking about it. So leaning on our own wisdom, our own understanding turns out to be the exact opposite of the single biggest commandment the Lord gives us. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't leave mind out. Our rational faculties given by God, designed by God, must operate under submission to God. And when I begin to think that I know better because 
believe the science or believe the theologians that tell us, well, you know, the Bible's an ancient book and so we have to kind of adapt some things. We got to change some things. It doesn't really mean what it says. When those things come in, those are the attacks of the evil one to usurp our submission to God's sovereignty. That does not mean check your brains at the door. It means bring your brains and submit it to God. Your brain is given to you for a reason. God does not expect foolishness in our faith. But he also will not abide rebellion. We saw that in the last chapter, as in chapter 15, we were called to, to live lives set apart for God as those who belong to God. That was the call for the Israelites. And we saw God's, God's penchant for mercy, that those who sin unintentionally, because you're just doing stuff and you're dumb people, sinful people, and you do dumb, sinful things, right? I'm speaking to the guy in the mirror primarily. But that was the case for the Israelites. And God says, when you fail to do what you're supposed to do, and then you realize that you messed up, here's the provision for your forgiveness. But if anybody sins with a high hand, in other words, you see what God has commanded and you say, I don't think I really have to do that. In other words, you reject God's sovereignty. There is no provision for it. You're to be cut off from God's people. The very next thing that we see is this chapter where that exact thing is taking place. God said in, back in chapter 9, I think it was, when he establishes the Levites, here is, here's your, your goal. Here's what you're doing. All right, not your goal, your job, your assignment, your mission. And these different groups of the Levites are to do these specific jobs. You do your job. You do your job faithfully. You don't do what is not assigned to you. Only Aaron's descendants are to enter this place and to offer these sacrifices. So even the Kohathites, who are to pack up and protect and carry the holy things from within the tabernacle, they're to do that but they're not to go into the tabernacle to look upon these things. They have to follow God's prescribed rules. Korah and his buddies say, why? We're going to question that authority. I don't think we need to do that because we're just as good as those guys. That, that whole attitude sounds good, sounds egalitarian, sounds, if you will, populist, but sinful rebellion often dresses in human wisdom. Matthew Henry in his, uh, in his commentary, uh, one of my favorites, perhaps my favorite uh, commentator, Matthew Henry said that while they pretended, <laughs> while they pretended to assert the holiness and liberty of the Israel of God. They really took up arms against the God of Israel. It's the nature of it when we rely on our own wisdom. So we, 
we've talked about the context of the problem. We see the character of the problem. Let's take a look at the crisis itself. What, what is the, the problem that we see here? And in verses 8 to 11, we find this. Coveting shows contempt for God's character and will. Coveting shows contempt for God's character and will. You will recognize that as one of the top ten, one of the ten commandments in Exodus 20. Thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's, right? Somebody else has it, and I want it. That's coveting. Coveting is a desire for something that belongs to someone else. When we desire what God has given to someone else, what we're doing is rejecting his sovereign choices. And we treat him with contempt in so doing. Those who honor God serve humbly. Those who grasp for authority or fight for a position that God has given to someone else despise the Lord. We might see that as a positive ambition throughout other generations. In, in past centuries, ambition was seen as something not to be trusted. Perhaps we need to see that again today. We've relied on earth principles, human understanding, to say that, well, the economy only works if we, if we strive, if we go out and we are always grasping, always trying to get more. And from a human perspective, perhaps that's true. Except it totally neglects one major fact, in fact, the underlying truth of everything. God is sovereign. God gives and God takes away. That's the message of the book of Job in a nutshell. He starts out with that. All the terrible things that happened to Job and his response is, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Along the way, he gets a little frustrated, obviously, because things are, are not great for him, understandably, right? But because his friends, who have some pretty good theology but don't have any clue what God is actually doing, they, they accuse Job of having sin that he needs to repent of. And he's it's like, if God would just show up, this would all get settled. I know I didn't do anything wrong. And then God shows up. And God doesn't answer any of the questions. And he doesn't respond to Job. He doesn't condemn Job. But he does speak to Job and he says, now... I'm here. What'd you have to say? Job, sit down. I'm going to ask you some questions. Who are you to question me? Where were you when I put things in place? Do you know where I store the snow? Do you have a, a hook in Leviathan's mouth? All these things that God gives Job this picture of, you think you got this figured out. But you forgot one thing, I'm God and you're not. When we begin to covet those things that other people have, we have that desire to want more than God has given us rather than being content. What we're really doing is saying, God, I don't trust your plan. I don't trust your sovereignty. This is why we struggle so often with the with the. Um, doctrine of God's sovereign election. We see it in Scripture, and we want to skip over those passages because they don't sound right. It sounds like God's taking choices out of our hands. Well, the bottom line, 
the bottom line of the scripture is I don't have to understand it. I have to submit to it. I have to understand that God is God and I am not. And there are things in the scriptures that we may not understand until we're face to face with them. But then there are the plain things. The plain things, as Pastor Begg likes to say, are the main things. And the main things are the plain things. And when God says, I chose you, you didn't choose me, okay, that seems pretty plain. How does that work? I don't know. That's on God's side of the curtain. I've got to deal on my side of the curtain. And what I know for sure is that God is sovereign and man is still responsible. How does that work? I don't know. Ask him. And when we get there, we'll know. Or what we don't know, we'll stop caring about because we'll see things as he sees them. So the whole idea of saying, I don't like what God chooses, I need to have my free will, is exactly what these guys are saying here. We've made such an idol out of free will that what we've essentially done is said, humanity is in charge. Nothing is valid unless I choose it. Nothing is valid unless I acknowledge it. If I don't understand it, it can't be right. It can't be good. God can't operate that way because I don't understand. And then by doing that, we're making ourselves sovereign. God can't do things that I don't understand or like. Well, who's in charge? Him or me? This is the problem with coveting, with wanting what God has given to someone else. Those who honor God serve humbly. Those who are, uh, who are grasping at position, seeking that glory, despise the Lord. They serve God nobly who serve him humbly. Those who seek glory in serving the Lord actually serve only themselves and they find only his wrath. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6 that godliness with contentment is great gain. It is a gain to be happy with what God has given to us. To desire him above all things, not the blessings, not the things of this earth. When we desire these things, when we desire the health and the wealth and the happiness that this earth offers, we're not seeking God. We're just seeking a handout from God. Jesus spoke about that same kind of an attitude in John chapter 6. He'd fed 5,000 people miraculously. And not surprisingly, the people followed him. Big crowds. When they finally caught up with him, Jesus said, you didn't follow, you didn't come because you were convinced by the signs. You came because you had your belly filled. You enjoyed the gifts. You enjoyed the swag bag. But that's not what this is about. You didn't come for me. You came for what I give you. He gave a picture of a hard heart. That idea of coveting is why we see the Corinthian church 
jealous of one another's gifts. Well, how come that person gets to lead worship instead of me getting to lead worship? Or what? I, you know, I don't think that person's, you know, that they should be in leadership. I, I thought I should be in leadership. Well, that person's speaking in tongues. Why doesn't God give me the gift of tongues or whatever it is? Fill in whatever blanks you want. And they were biting and devouring each other because they were envious of what God was doing in someone else. And so Paul gives them the picture in 1 Corinthians 12. Listen, (laughs) we're all one body. And you might think that, you know, just because you're an ear, you know, you're not as important as the eye. Or because you're a foot, you're not as important as the hand. But God says all of the members work together. Where would the body be if it didn't have all the parts that God designed it to have? You know who gets to decide whether you're an ear or an eye? The one who made the ear and the eye. And all of it is for his glory. If you've ever lost one of your senses for a time, some of you went through COVID and couldn't smell, couldn't taste, you don't really think about it too much until you don't have it, right? And then it's like, man, I used to really like pizza. I don't remember what that was. Some of us have gone through losing our eyesight or having it diminished. Some of you have lost or are losing your hearing and you have to have it amplified through technology. And you understand how frustrating it can be when you don't have it. And pretty much all of us who have gone through these losses can remember what it was like when we were young and took them for granted. When everything works well, we don't think about it. And then we notice somebody else in the church is getting glory. Somebody else is getting praise. And we get jealous. Well, that was my idea in the first place. How come I don't get credit for that? Well, how come that person was was set apart to, uh, to read a scripture or pray or whatever it is? Because we focus on ourselves instead of on God. Coveting shows contempt for God's character and will. Then we see that this problem is also a contagion. We can understand that idea in the aftermath of this more recent pandemic. But there is a a contagion in this passage. In verses 12 to 15, we see it. We see it again in verses 41 to 50. Rebellion is a pervasive and contagious attitude. Rebellion is a pervasive and contagious attitude. Even at the very beginning, we see that Korah may be at the, at the center of this, but he brings others along with him. He convinces them, and his attitude is, is caught among them. Uh, verses 12 to 15, we see Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. Now, understand, these guys aren't Levites. They're, so they're catching Korah's attitude, but they're not even among the Levites. They don't have the same, uh, they don't have the same uh, privileges that Korah and the Kohathites have. And Korah's trying to take the priesthood, which belongs to Aaron's descendants. But these guys, they get caught up in it as well. Well, yeah, we don't, 
we don't even have that. So we definitely don't think Moses and Aaron should be set above us. This isn't okay. Notice the rebellion, the disobedience that comes. Moses summoned them, but they said, we will not come. If you have an NIV, it has an exclamation point in there, which is not probably in the Hebrew, but it's, uh, it's very helpful for us in the English. Isn't it enough, Moses, that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the desert? Okay, hold on a second. This keeps coming up, doesn't it? Throughout this whole book, they keep bellyaching. We had it so much better in Egypt when we were slaves and spent four centuries crying out, well, not the whole time, but once they became slaves, crying out, Lord, deliver us, deliver us. This is terrible. We hate it. And then the moment God delivers them, can, can we go back? Because, you know, they had ice cream and stuff. They didn't have ice cream. I made that up. But they had leeks and onions and garlic, and they, they had uh, fish from the Nile. Now they're out here eating manna. They're complaining about it. We just went through that when, when God brought the quail to them. Over and over and over, grumbling, wanting what they had, even though what they had is distorted in their memory. It sure seems better as nostalgia than it did in reality. So this is a contagious attitude. They're starting to not just seek the, the priesthood, but they're, they're blaming Moses for everything that's going on, even though the reason that they're not already in the promised land is because of their sin. Now you also want to lord it over us? Have you noticed that we don't have anything in the story here about Moses and Aaron actually doing anything different than what they've been doing all along? It's not like there's an incident that triggers this. But along the way, the folks decide, hey, you think you're better than I, do, than I am. And they rebel. Verse 14, moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. That was the promise, right? You're going to bring them here. You haven't given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Well, you saw it. We sent the spies in. You saw the land. You saw that everything God had promised is right here. But you rejected it because you wanted to do things your way. Then they use a phrase here which might be rendered differently depending on the translation that you have. Literally, it says, will you gouge out the eyes of these men? No, we will not come. When it says we will gouge out the eyes of, of these men, that's alternately rendered uh, you want to deceive these men, you know, gouge out their eyes, they don't see the truth, or to make slaves of these men. In any case, this, this is an accusation against Moses and Aaron that you're pulling the wool over people's eyes so you can be in charge, so you can be the big boss man, and we ain't having it anymore. We're mad as all get out, and we're not taking it anymore. Rebellion is a pervasive and contagious attitude. This is why in the church we're commended in Ephesians 5.21 to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The idea behind it, and, and Paul then goes into detail about what that looks like in the home and in the workplace and so on, but the idea behind it is very simple. Have an attitude of deference. Consider others before you consider yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Consider others, consider others, consider others. In fact, in Philippians 2, verses 5 to 11, Paul says, 
if, if you've gotten any joy from being in Christ, make my joy complete this way. Let your attitude, your mindset, be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself as a servant. Not only taking on the form of a servant, but he humbled himself even to the point of death and that on a cross. It wasn't just the death, it was a humiliating death. It was the death of a cursed man. The death of the worst of criminals. It wasn't merely the physical death, it was the death of a reputation. And Jesus humbled himself to willingly take that on. And as Christ followers, that should be our attitude. Seeing others humbling ourselves. Rebellion is a pervasive and contagious attitude. But notice the contrast in attitude between these rebels and God's servants. Verses 16 and following, we see, <clears throat> excuse me. We see Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers will appear before the Lord tomorrow. Make sure I'm in the right spot here, yep. <laughs> you and they and Aaron. And they're all supposed to bring their censers and they're all going to, to present this fire. It's interesting because the, he tells them to do exactly what God says not to do. They have these censers and they're coming to do it. And he says, okay, do it. Come and bring it. And if God's pleased with you, he'll show you by choosing you. And if he's, if he's displeased, you'll see that too. He'll choose the man that God approves and he'll draw him near. So this happens and God is uh, unhappy with them. Each man took his censer in verse 18 and put fire and incense in it. Stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance of the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them, notice God's response. They, they're, they're gathered at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. Interestingly, that's what happened when God established, when he put the Levites in place. That's what happened when God established Aaron's priesthood. Back in Leviticus 9, the glory of the Lord appeared to establish Aaron as priest. Now the glory of the Lord appears again to confirm Aaron as priest. And notice what God says in verses 20 and 21. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourselves from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. God's had enough. He's done. But see the contrast between their attitudes, grasping for position, and the attitudes of God's servants. Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O oh God, God of the spirits of all mankind, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Moses and Aaron are putting into action the words of Jesus in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. You, you've heard, you you know, you love those who love you and you hate those who hate you. But I'm telling you, as my followers, as people of the way, love your enemies. 
Bless those who spitefully use you. Bless those who persecute you. These guys are being persecuted. And now they intervene on behalf of the, of the very people who have repeatedly refused to obey and to follow them. Again, this is at least the third recorded coup attempt in the last several chapters. And instead of saying, you know, you're right, God, kill them all. Well, let's just do this, just us. We'll be good. They cry out for God's mercy. There's a difference in the attitude. Notice Notice this. Those who love the Lord love mercy. Those who love the Lord love mercy. That's the contrast. And then we see the confrontation here in verses 23 to 40. It's interesting the way Moses points it out, starting with verse 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the assembly, Move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Okay, so uh, he was only going to save Moses and Aaron. He's going to save everybody that's not these guys. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you'll be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to the tents. Before we move on, two things you need to notice. First... Notice this. God will have mercy, but you have to move. God's going to spare them, but he says, you need to move away from these guys. If you're going to keep hanging out with those that God's judging, you will get swept away. Don't be near them. Don't be a part of them. Come away from them and be separate, says the Lord. Be holy, set apart. He's going to judge them. And in the judgment, he's going to affirm who belongs to him. But notice also that these guys who are about to be judged, they have their families with them. Our loved ones, our circle of influence, suffers for our sins. When we sin, when we rebel against God, the consequences of that have a spillover, splash effect. To those around us, choices have consequences. Bad choices have victims. And as we are working through our living out of life, when we do things contrary to God, and God stands against us, those who are close to us suffer for our sin. Be aware of that. If you're not concerned for yourself, have concern for those that, that you love. Let's get right so that innocent people don't suffer for our sinfulness. Continuing, Moses says in verse 28, and this is what I think is really interesting. This is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to, to do all these things and that it was not my idea. All right, so this is Moses saying right out front, look, I didn't choose this. I didn't seek this. I didn't climb the ladder. It wasn't because I had a better resume. God put us here, not me. Verse 29, if these men die a natural death and experience only what usually happens to men, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new, and he describes it, the earth opens up its mouth 
and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the grave, it's a pretty graphic picture, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. In other words, if God does what God always does, if normal things happen, you can assume unless God steps in and intervenes to prove that he's called me, that he's called Aaron, unless God himself intervenes in a miraculous way to show you that, you can assume that we're not his. But when God judges Korah and his folks, it is the confirmation of his calling on those that he has chosen. Notice in the confirmation, God affirms his chosen ones by judging his enemies. He affirms his chosen ones by judging his enemies. Rejecting the authorities God has placed over us is the same as rejecting God. And in judging those who despise his sovereignty, God affirms Moses and Aaron, his chosen servants. Paul said to the Corinthian church when they were having some squabbles over things, he said, you know, I don't like this division, but it's actually good that there is division to show who God approves and who God doesn't. If you all just, you know, had this fake unity where you don't actually agree on truth, you're not grounded in the word to agree on sound doctrine, but you all just want to get along, that's not a good thing. It's good that the sword divides so that you can see who holds the truth and who does not, whom God has chosen and whom he has judged. So we have this confrontation. Uh, these guys uh, the, the, at the hub of it get swallowed up by the ground. They go down alive into the grave. And then the, the rest, the 250, so it appears that there's an additional group that's banded around Korah, and then you also have the 250 among the leaders. And those who had the censers, now fire from God comes out and consumes them. Second time we've seen this. It's happened to, uh, to not in this particular chapter, but we saw this happen to uh, Aaron's two oldest sons who were authorized to bring this fire to the Lord. But they did it when it wasn't the right time. They brought a strange fire before the Lord because while they had the authorized role, God had not authorized the sacrifice and he consumed them. Here we see the same type of thing happening. And God says, not only are we going to see this judgment, but he's actually going to use these instruments that were used to do a holy thing in an unholy way. The sacrifices of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. They bring this sacrifice that's unauthorized, but in so doing, these censors that have been used to approach God are made holy. They become holy, as the Lord says to him here. So he says, as a reminder, here's what's going to happen. Have Aaron's son, Eliezer, take those censers, take the remains, the ashes of these who were burned up outside the camp with the unclean things. Take them far away. Remove them from the camp. Take the censers that were used consider them holy, consecrate them, set them apart, hammer them out into sheets and overlay the altar with them so that for time immemorial, as we go forward, we, as we look back and then as we go forward, the people will remember 
Nobody gets to bring a sacrifice on their own terms. We approach God on his terms. And they do just that. Notice, though, in verses 41 to 50, the people are dumb, just like me. Maybe you can identify. How many times does God have to teach the same lesson before we get it? You just saw the ground open up and swallow dudes. You don't think you ought to maybe get your mind right? You just saw the fire come out from the tent of meeting and from the glory of the Lord and consume dudes, and you don't think you should get, repent? Instead, what do they do? They get mad at Moses and Aaron. You've killed the people of the Lord. Guys, were you not listening to the whole thing that, that was going on here? God made really clear what was going on. So they continued to do the same thing, a lot like you and me. Notice this in the conciliation of this. The Lord's servant stands between the living and the dead. The Lord's servant stands between the living and the dead. As we see this happening here, Aaron serves in this particular part of the story as, as a type of Christ, as a foreshadowing, as an illustration of the Christ who would come and he goes into the midst of the problem. The people are sinning. The plague has already broken out against them. God is pouring out his wrath, and people are dying. Lots of people are dying. And he doesn't run from it, and he doesn't say, well, you get what you deserve. If they all died, they would be getting what they deserved. But Moses tells Aaron to go and intercede, to go into the problem he goes into the midst of it, the midst of the problem, the midst of the people, among the sin, among the sinners. And he stands in the gap between the living and the dead to quell God's righteous wrath. That's exactly what Jesus did for us. We stand condemned already. All of us, Ephesians 2, used to be children of wrath. Everyone apart from Christ is an object of wrath. It's our natural state. We're born sinners, separated from God. And the only thing that we have to do to go to hell is exist because the sin is already in us. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son to stand in the gap for us. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that he who knew no sin became sin for us. Now Aaron was a sinner, but he wasn't sinful in this situation. He was not among the judged. He went into them to stand among them, to stand between them and the wrath that God was pouring out so that he could appeal to God on their behalf. And the plague stopped. Jesus Christ is the conciliation, the propitiation, the sacrifice of atonement to set us right with God by appeasing his righteous wrath. Therefore, when Jesus stood in the gap for us, it was an aroma pleasing to the Lord. He paid the full price. 
he became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. As we consider this idea that sinful hearts resent God's sovereignty, it's necessary for us to recognize that you don't get to be a child of God just because you showed up. That's how you become an object of wrath, by being. But when we repent, when we come on our faces as Moses and Aaron fell down face, face down before the Lord, when we come empty-handed on our knees, say, Lord, I'm a sinner. And I need a Savior. And I'm not going to try to be in charge anymore. Lord, I recognize that you're the king. You're sovereign. I'm not. Therefore, I want to surrender myself. I'm, I'm the clay. You're the potter. You can make me however you want. And I know I deserve judgment and wrath. And I'm so thankful that Jesus stood in the gap for me that I could have life. Then he makes us his children. John 1.12 says, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. No one who comes to him is ever turned away. But you can't come thinking you're offering something to him. What are you going to offer? What can you possibly do to impress God? What could you possibly do to wipe away the stain of your stubborn heart? But God, rich in mercy, sent the suffering servant, the Christ, to bear our sin and our shame. Let's surrender ourselves to him. Let's bow in prayer together. Father, we, um, we recognize that it is natural for us to want our own way. For us to want to be in charge, to, to desire things that are not ours to desire. But you've called us not to be natural, but to be supernatural. Not to try to earn our way to you in some religion, but to receive the offering of life and peace, peace with you that you offer us in your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, remind us in every moment and every day that we were made for your pleasure, for your glory, not for ours. Lord, protect us from the lie of <laughs> what we might call a prosperity gospel, this idea that somehow we should be receiving earthly benefits from you. And even worse, to think that somehow we're not receiving earthly benefits from you. Teach us, Lord, that every day, every breath is your grace to us. We have nothing on our own. Every good thing we have comes from your hand. And every harsh thing that comes into our lives, you've already sifted through your will 
either to break us down, to bring us to the cross, or to shape us and prepare us for heaven. So, Father, we pray that now. I pray for each person hearing my voice that you would draw them to Christ, that you would snatch them from the jaws of death and hell, that you would fit us for heaven. And that in the meantime, as we practice, as we practice your kingdom living here, that the world around us would be made light by our presence here, not because we have any glory of our own, but because we are reflecting your light and bringing glory to your name. Draw us into your presence, Lord. Make us who you want us to be for your pleasure and glory. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.